Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from Phoenix, Arizona, is Robin Wayland. She is a retired nurse, and I've known her for a couple years now, but uh, she's got some pretty awesome experiences to share about death, dying, and also living. So, Robin, welcome. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Yeah, of course. And uh, thank you for listening to the show. And um, we know each other through a mutual writing group. But um, over the years, I've gotten to know you better than that. And uh, the first thing I wanted to explore about your life is uh, your career as a nurse, because I know that that's in the healthcare field and has a lot to do. So before we jump into that, um, I always ask our guests three standard questions, which is, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation do you consider yourself from, if any? Oh, Okay, let's see. Um, in that order, I will be 70 this November. I grew up um, in Connecticut, um, initially for the first eight years in mid-Connecticut, a spot called Litchfield, which is very quaint, very beautiful, you know, clapboard houses on the green, all of that. And then um, my folks moved to the shore so I then grew up um, in a short town community that my father knew very well because he had grown up near there. So everything was very, very familiar to him. So I grew up sailing and around boats and everything else. And let's see. Um, and the I, I'm a boomer. I am a baby boomer. There's no two ways about that. I was born in 1951. And so um, I do remember very vividly stories of my folks going through um, what it was like in the war and how they had food ration coupons and so on and so forth. My father didn't serve because he was too young at the time, but he was of age for Korea and got out of that. And I can't remember how or why, but he was Navy, my grandfather was Navy, and everybody before him was Navy. Cool, very cool. And uh, that's all very interesting, and it helps make sense because uh, you're an author and you're also a poet, um, which means you're a writer, but you specifically, I know those two mediums for you. And your poetry really speaks about your experiences growing up on the East Coast and with sailing, and it also speaks about nursing and your relationships. So next on my agenda, and feel free to skip around whatever you want, I would like to to get into your career as a nurse. Um, basically just the highlights, meaning like, how did you become one? Why did you become one? And then uh, I'll start asking you questions. Okay. Um, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. And when um, I graduated from high school, they just were not taking women into the medical field. Maybe one percent of women graduated from medical school, but that was rare. Um, so it was an uphill struggle, and I was not the sterling student that medical schools would have taken. So um, I graduated from school with a BA in my BA with in languages, which was easy for me. That was something that just came to me. 
languages and um, education so I could teach, but hated teaching. So then after three kids were born, went back into nursing and got my um, nursing degree and um, passed the NCLEX and started at the VA. Actually, I take that back. I started on um, for a year and a half because it was very difficult to get a job when I graduated from nursing school. And so the very, the only job I could find was at a nursing home. So I worked there for a year and a half until the VA finally took me. And so that was in Denver in golly, 19 jeepers. Um, 1983, I think it was when I got my nursing license. That gives you perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't know you were a teacher. That's really interesting. Um, so I guess because this is a podcast about dying, I'm going to kind of start asking the morbid questions. Um, first of all, before you were a nurse, had you ever experienced uh, anyone dying? Uh, not meaning had someone in your life died, but had you seen someone die? I'd never seen anybody physically die in front of me. I was never there for the... Um, for the last parts and pieces of the agonal response to dying. So no, it wasn't until I became a nurse that I actually saw somebody die right in front of me. And do you want to, I'm curious, what was your first experience with that? Like, do you remember it? Yeah, I do vividly. Um, this is when I was working in the nursing home and it was this little frail, little old lady. She was like, 90 something years old and she had just been discharged from the a local hospital with pneumonia and came to our facility for the two or three weeks sort of they call it rehab but we weren't rehabbing anybody um and she couldn't go home because she couldn't take care of herself so I remember um, one of the aides came to me and said, Mrs. Her first name is Velma, um, but she doesn't look too good, which is never a great, a great sign. So I went running in there and certainly um, she did not look well at all. And I can't even remember if she was breathing, but if she was, it was totally agonal. There was a faint pulse. And I remember thinking, we don't have a code status on this woman. So at that time in nursing homes, because we didn't have a doctor on premise, if you were not a no code, we had to do CPR. So um, this was the first person I'd ever done CPR on other than a wax and dummy. And I remember doing, you know, that's sort of when all the, the, teaching comes in and you go into this autopilot. And I remember measuring down um, on this woman's frail, frail rib cage and putting my fist on her rib cage and doing the first boom, you know, first compression, which broke her sternum. And I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified, but I couldn't stop until the paramedics came, which could be 10, 15, 20 minutes. So I'm sitting there doing CPR thinking, what the hell? I mean, I, I, what am I doing? I'm not saving this woman's life. 
I'm destroying what and you know the dying embers of this woman's life. Then in those days too, we did mouth to mouth, and so I remember thinking she has pneumonia. Oh my God! And I put my mouth on hers and gave two breaths, watching as her chest rose, and my hand was on her chest, so I could feel as her lungs would inflate, thinking. Am I just blowing air into her pulmonary tree because I could have, you know, cracked her? I know I broke her sternum and her ribs are sort of flailing away. And what am I, you know, am I creating holes in her lungs? Because when you think the lungs as being balloons within balloons, you if you break those with ribs, which is not hard to do, then you're you know, you're just blowing into the chest cavity. And it was blissfully the paramedics came and sort of looked at me and looked at her and realized this woman is dead. There's nothing we could do. But the protocol at that time said that they had to haul her off to the hospital. And I got a call the next day as I was at work trying to sort of sort this out in my head. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, whether it was a social worker or whatever, but I remember getting fussed at for sending this person to the hospital. And I remember thinking, there has got to be a better way to do this because this was horrible. Um, and then I had to tell, I had to call the sister who was 90 some odd years old and explain to her that her sister died. And that was, that was just awful. And of course she, came in and wanted to get her sister's things and I, it was just um i mean in my mind i can remember going through all of the things she had in her bedside um table and the one thing we didn't have was her teeth and they needed them i found this out um for the mortuary and heaven only knows where those teeth are but anyway that was my first experience with death and why I didn't just wow. quit right then and there <laughs> beyond me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty heavy. And it, it really entailed all of the things about dying too, like with the actual yeah. process, the trying to save the life, telling people. So um, did it get easier after that? Did it always um, stay kind of hard? It, it was, it's always hard. It's always hard. But, you know, and then my, I, I was married twice. Both husbands died of cancer. And that was, that, that put a whole different light on things that made it personal. And um, up until that, ha I, my first husband died, I, death was something that happened to other people that I took care of. When my first husband died, death became personal. Now, yes, I had had other people die in my life. My mother had died at an early age. My All of my grandparents had died. My great-grandmother, whom I knew and loved dearly. But that was separate because they didn't die in front of me. But when my first husband died, this was the first time a loved one, dearly loved one, was dying in front of me. And we had already established that he, you know, he said he didn't want tubes he didn't want this he didn't want any of that so i said okay fine and this is uh just real quick for our audience this is the father of your three children correct yes yes and we were in virginia i was working for the navy um 
at that point. And we had this wonderful house on stilts that my favorite house in the world. But I remember, um, you know, I remember my daughter coming in saying, um, mom, you've got to do something. He's dying. And I said, I know he's dying. I know he is. We're going to keep him comfortable. Um, there's, that's the most we can do. And so, um, I sort of worked as well as I could through all of that. Um, not only were the kids there in various stages, but also his mother was there. And this was the last of her five kids. Um, that she was to see die. And she wasn't handling it particularly well either. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, I mean, what's what's good and what's bad in these circumstances? Heaven knows, I, I certainly don't know. But anyway, after that, that became personal. And death was no longer something that happened to people. It was something that happened, it, you know, be, it was going to happen to all of us, but it was more of a personal fight. And that's when um, the Navy contacted me and said, hey, you know, it's just that this was um, actually Balboa and said, hey, we have an opening for a GS, whatever it was, 12 position in San Diego. Are you interested? And I thought I was doing cardiology then, you know, all the cardiology tests and everything. And um, loving my job, I worked, you know, 10-hour days, perfect. Had the most wonderful house in the world, but decided, yes, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to change everything that I do. I'm going to sort of reset everything. It's like doing, um, sort of like defibrillating your life. (laughs) 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 Because you're resetting everything you're what you do, where you are, you know, where you live, everything. So I packed up the house, packed up the car, got in. A week later, I was in San Diego reinventing me and trying to get through the sort of ashes of what remained of my understanding of how, you know, my first husband died and all of the sort of the remnants of that. And, and real quick, um, were your three children already out of the house when you moved to San Diego? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were all grown and gone. Yeah. And I had my granddaughter with me, actually, who was eight, ten, something like that. So she had to witness this, too. And it was just it was really hard because afterwards I was just phenomenally depressed and surprisingly so. And so San Diego was sort of this new move and it was going to be. Um, it was essential for my Navy career because I needed five years in California as the top five anyway before um, I retired. So anyway, that's that was sort of the thinking of it all. I'm glad I actually know you personally because I don't feel bad asking this question, but it's a very hard question for me to ask a normal person. Um, as someone who's very happily married, you know, the thought of my my wife passing away at any stage is incredibly depressing. Can you explain, not the depression, but like, what did you tell yourself? Like, how did you wake up? How did you go on? I mean, I know tons of people lose people, but I want to hear how you did it. Oh, that, yeah. Um, I remember the intern, I remember when um, I took JD into the hospital 
um, this was actually it was early on in our move to uh, Virginia from Denver. He was complaining of hip pain and things like that. So we took him to the VA and I was thinking they were going to say arthritis. The intern whom I knew from his rotations, I knew him professionally as a nurse. He pulled me aside and he said, I hate to tell you this, but your husband's got multiple myeloma. And that is not the diagnosis you want to hear as a nurse, as an oncology nurse, because all I remember with myeloma is my patients complaining of pain, pain, pain. So he said, this is going to be a long haul and it's going to be hard. And he said, we'll get, we'll get him straight on all the medications he needs and hooked into an oncologist, but he's not going to be um, eligible for bone marrow um, transplant. So it's just going to be a long haul for you. And he said, let us know if you need time off or anything like that. So me in the typical sort of nurse framework, I said, well, okay, I need to contact the kids and make sure he had kids from um, outside marriages or other marriages. So I wanted to make sure all the kids had a chance to come and spend some time, quality time with him. So um, we arranged that. I remember saying to JD, I sat down one day and I said, okay, this, this is, this diagnosis is not a happy one. Um, you, there's going to be pain. And we had sat down with also with the oncologists and all the other medical leads, but this was a time where it's just me and JD. And I said, what do you want from all of this? What is it that you want? And he said, you know, I want time with you and I want time with my kids. I want time. And I said, well, okay, I'm going to make it as painless as possible. But I said, you know, there's going to be times your mother's going to want you to come to Rocky Mount, North Carolina, you know, be with her and all of that. And he said, no, I am not going to the hospital. I'm not having tubes in my body. I'm not going out like a sucker. He said, I want you, you've been with me through all of this. I want you in my bed the way you always have been. And I said, okay, that's, that's the way it is. And that's the way it was. I mean, I remember the very last day, I remember there was one time, this is kind of funny. Um, my mother-in-law was, had just, she wanted to encamp right in our bedroom. And JD said, no, absolutely not. No, there's some. There's going to be some separation here. You you go sleep elsewhere, and we had ample rooms in that house, so it, that wasn't a deal breaker. But we were able to put a um, a hospital bed in the. Um, it was this sort of technically it's a porch, but it's enclosed and it had uh, it had saltillo tile down, so it was the one room that could really hold a hospital bed. So um, J.D. and I slept together in that hospital bed because he insisted he wanted to feel me next to him at night. That was how he felt secure. And unfortunately, with all of the medications we had to give him, he had a lot of nightmares and sort of vivid recall from Vietnam and Korea and all the rest of it. But he always was sort of calmed by feeling my body next to his. 
So um, right up until the day he died, that's the, that's the way it was. And I know my mother-in-law was livid. She was like, no, you know, but I said, well, oh, this is the way JD wants it. And this is the way it's going to be. Well, I, I love that. So, so what are you, um, spiritually speaking, metaphysically speaking, do you believe anything happens when we die? I mean, what do you think actually happens? Yes, I do. I do. Um, and, I, you know, since then, at that point, I became a little bit more um, attuned metaphysically to what happens during that process. Because I've never believed that energy just disappears. And I've always thought, and I still think this, um, and since when I went on to, you know, teach young um, nurses and corpsmen about how to take care of the dead, you know, the dying and, and how to take care of people at the point of death and after death and all of this kind of stuff, I always felt that, you know, all of the energy that the heart has, that the brain has, all of that electrical energy we're taught in science that it doesn't disappear. Energy just doesn't cease to exist. Um, and I think somehow as the body dies, a lot of the internal systems go sort of slow down too. We know that the GI system slows down, but the heart's a different animal. The heart's electricity, the heart's, it's really interesting because we've seen in in patients that are dying a perfectly good sinus rhythm and they'll be pulseless. They'll be absolutely dead, but they'll have a perfectly good sinus rhythm. So what is up with that? You know, where does elect, that electricity go? And also I've seen the inverse um, where they'll, and this is more often the case where you'll have this phenomenal energy it'll be a vtac vfib and then sort of dwindling down to nothing but then right after that there is this period of i, I just don't know how to describe it but it's this period where everybody is very very quiet in the room including staff doctors whomever and loved ones where you just, it's just this period of silence. It's kind of like, I, rem, I liken it to before um, meals, my grandmother, who was Quaker, would always say, may we have a moment of silence. And that was the Quaker way of prayer. It reminds me of that, that moment of silence. And it's this highly spiritual energy that you feel in the room, whether it's exiting the room, whether it's walking out by, um, by elevator, by escalator, who knows, but you do feel it. And people that are sensitized to it, feel it too. So, um, and then of course, you know, you go on with whatever your spiritual dictates are. For me, it was always teaching the corpsmen to use rose water and things like that to wash the body and to and to treat the, the body, the person with reverence, whatever your reverence or whatever your reverence would be, but to treat that person who, even though they've 
no longer have a beating heart, there's still a person, there's still that energy that's exiting the body. And so that requires um, profound kind of gentle touch. But that took me 20 years. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And this is, that was very profound. Um, do you think that energy includes our consciousness or do you think it's a different thing? No, I think, I mean, having seen a dying heart, literally having seen hearts, because, you know, in the ICU, you're all hooked up to monitors. And a lot of times we'll turn off the sound on the monitors, but we'll watch the monitors in another room so that we can tell when we need to go in. I mean, that's just a very practical element that just about every ICU nurse does. Because you don't want to come upon a body like you do at five o'clock in the morning and they've been dead for God only knows how long. And you think, oh, my goodness, they died all by themselves. Well, yes, most people do die all by themselves. Death is a, it's a process that is so low. <laughs> no, we don't generally haul people along with it. But um, so, you know, you you kind of watch as the heart kind of dwindles down and the energy, the amplitude electrically in that myocardium goes down too in certain cases. And you, that's got to be the same with a brain. I haven't, I've only once or twice um, had the EEGs hooked up. And again, it's that same kind of um, activity that sort of subliminally winds down as the body winds down. It's very curious. I mean, from a totally clinical standpoint but it's also highly profound it's very profound and it's it makes you take at least it makes me take a step back as just sort of a human being and a mother and a wife and a this and a that um and a nurse it kind of makes you step back and think wow you know i've seen babies born into the world and it's that same kind of profound, oh, wow, that, you know, it kind of grips you, but kind of in reverse, if you can imagine that. That's really well said. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. We're not out of it. So I do want to ask you uh, to kind of share personally for yourself, how, how do you feel about your own mortality and your own death? How would you like it to happen? Do you think about that? I do. I do. I'm 70. The better part of my life is behind me rather than in front of me. And um, I, you know, at this point, I look at how, you know, obviously I look at very practical things like um, advanced directives and I know exactly what I do and don't want. And it's not that I'm like, you know, what Reza wanted or what JD wanted. I don't want a whole lot of intervention in my death. Um, I want some comfort and I kind of have a sense that I probably will live to be a fairly ripe old age if genetics has any uh, predicting qualities to it. So my grandparents uh, lived to be almost 100 and they were fairly spry, um, all things considered. So that probably will be my trajectory. I don't want to die in a hospital unless, well, there's a couple of caveats to that. If I'm going to bleed out, I'm going to bleed out in a hospital. If I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up in a hospital because that means I'm not staining the house because that's important for me. 
you know, I saw how the house was stained when my first husband died and I no longer wanted to live in it. I don't want to do that to, you know, to my kids. It's pretty horrific to see. So um, I just sort of kind of like resume my second husband sort of closed his eyes. And that was that at eight o'clock one morning and he just didn't open them again. And so um, that seems to be a pretty good way of how I'd like to go. And I think most nurses and people in the profession look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's it. Not in a blaze of glory, not in a plane that's, you know, coming down the skies, just sort of quietly and peacefully, just not wake up. That's so incredible. And that's so beautiful. We're pretty much out of time. I do like to let guests kind of have the floor at the end. So if there's any message you would like to tell people, either specific or unspecifically related to death, dying, what you've learned, please go ahead and tell us. I think it's not, it's, death is not for me, for my practical experience. It's not something to fear. It's something to prepare for when you have the option to prepare. It's something to look at and say, you know, I want this. I don't want that. If And I, st- I was very, very diligent in my advanced directives by saying, I do not want a feeding tube. I don't want a feeding tube down my nose. I don't want a feeding tube in my stomach. If I can't enjoy food, that's it. Besides, I know practically that when you try to feed a stomach that's dying, you have bad results. So um, that's just practical elements. But I don't want to be force-fed. I don't want to be force-ventilated. I don't want anyone to mash on my heart and break my ribs the way I did some poor lady. So it's sort of, you know, I want to have all my faculties. And then when the time comes, the time comes. Bang, that's it. You know, um, I don't want any artificial means of keeping me um, alive the way physicians think alive is. And we all know it ain't alive. There is no living when you're on a ventilator. That's just existence. And that's not for me. But I'm not afraid of those elements. You know, it doesn't scare me. Um, I'm almost sort of like another another chapter, another adventure. And because, you know, I'm a great, I love to read. It is another chapter. You turn the page and voila, there it is. But it's just not yet written. So that's sort of the way I like to look at it all. Well, that is beautiful and profound. And so is this interview. And I actually get a strong feeling, Robin, that you will definitely be around another 25, 30 years. And so I will get the pleasure of knowing you for all those. Um, Well, you said 100 and you said you're turning 70. So um, I appreciate everything you said. It was very eloquent and well said. um, And you helped us put another nail in the coffin. And again, for our listeners at home, uh, if you could take a second to please review the podcast online and uh, like us and find us on Facebook and all that good stuff. Uh, we'd really appreciate it we're trying to grow my name is Mike Oppenheim you have been listening to Coffin Talk and we will see you soon